0: Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, even though we are now 13 years, believe it or not, removed from the beginning of the Iraq War, it has become a centerpiece in some ways of the 2016 presidential campaign. On the Democratic side, you've got – Bernie Sanders bragging about the fact that he, unlike Hillary Clinton, opposed the war from the get-go. And on the Republican side, you've got Donald Trump claiming that he was always against the war as well and making a number of other allegations that we'll get into in a moment. But you wrote a recent column refreshing people's memory on just the facts of what happened here. And I just want to take this piece by piece today. So why don't we start here back in the 90s. Describe for us the role that Bill Clinton's administration played in stepping up our efforts against Saddam Hussein?
1: Well, in the 90s, following the end of the first Gulf War, there was a number of books that were published. Um, there was a New York Times bestseller called um, The General's War uh, about the Iraq War by Trainer uh, and another author in the t- Times. There was uh, Rick Atkinson wrote something I think called Crusades. Uh, Mr. Ricks wrote things. And if I could sum those up, they were – the Bush administration, i.e., the first Bush administration, blew it. They did not take out Saddam. They shook down allies for money as if it was a mercenary enterprise. They took they they oversold the threat. They took far too many soldiers, and put in a. They were not idealistic. They had far too many in, uh, uh, um, allies that hampered our, our range of motion. So the Saudis and. Other people, the Syrians, tabled getting rid of Saddam. And this was a bad thing that we did. And Clinton then inherited the no-fly zones. And over that eight years from 92 to 2000, they were made a mockery. And then people came back and said, well, we need to get rid of this guy because he's going to get nuclear weapons. And I'm saying people, I mean Madeleine Albright literally, Sandy Berger, National Security Advisor, literally – And Bill Clinton, so much so that he signed into law the uh, Iraqi Liberation Act. And then people like Francis Fukuyama and others um, wrote a letter about the need for preemption and regime change. And that was the official policy. And then without congressional approval or UN approval, Operation Desert Fox at the end of the uh, Clinton administration, we bombed him. So then Bush came in, and he didn't do much, and people were still clamoring, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. Saddam was cheating, and then 9-11 happened, and the decision was made to clean up the problem in the Middle East. And uh, we forget today that Bush did go to the Congress, unlike Clinton. He asked for a writ. He got 23 of them, and they weren't just about WMD. They were on trying to kill former president bush they were saving the marsh arabs from genocide uh protecting the kurds from genocide stopping the suicide uh, bounties for west west bank bombers um boy there was a trying to get rid of uh, abu abbas and abu nadal and the first world trade bombing uh, suspect who were were in baghdad at the time so harry reed and you know um john Kerry and Rock, J. Rockefeller, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, they all gave in passion speeches, What we got to preempt and go into Iraq. So we did. And everybody was delighted. Brilliant operation. Three weeks, less than 200 Americans lost, overthrew Saddam, people in the streets, statue goes down, Fox News, Wall Street Journal polls, 90%. And guess what? They didn't prepare for the occupation too well. It got messy. And within a year... Uh, Not only did the Democrats say they were tricked, fooled, WMD wasn't there, uh, but a lot of the Republicans turned on it as well and it became very messy until the surge. And then basically David Petraeus et al. went over there and through a combination of change tactics, more troops and the Anbar awakening – they pacified it in a way that, say, South Korea was pacified by 53. Obama came in, dropped his opposition entirely. It was scrubbed from his website that he wanted everybody out in March 2008. That was not an issue in the 2008 debates. It wasn't the primary, but the surge had taken care of it, entered office with fewer people dying the entire year in Iraq, Americans, than the monthly accident rate of the U.S. military. And then Joe Biden declared it that it would be one of our greatest achievements. And Obama himself said that he was going to leave a secure and self-reliant Iraq. And he did. And that lasted about six months. And, you know, he pulled out every one of our peacekeepers, nearly 30,000, and chaos erupted, Arab Spring, etc. And that's where we are today. And so now we're saying that Bush did this, Bush did that. But nobody says... John Kerry did this and Hillary Clinton gave this talk about why we had to preempt and Bill Clinton started the ball rolling by signing the Iraqi Liberation Act. And then pundits like the the editor of The New Yorker or the editor of New Republic or Joe Klein or Andrew um, Sullivan or David Brooks or – Thomas Friedman or Fareed Zakaria were all on board, pushing, pushing to go into war. Reminds me of what Matthew Ridgway said, the only bad, worst thing than losing, uh, you know, than than fighting a bad war was losing it. So they they said basically, my brilliant three-week invasion is now your stupid three-year occupation. I want no part of it. And that's where we are.
0: One of the reasons that this has been back in the forefront recently is that Donald Trump has made sort of the extreme sort of conspiracy theory version of the argument that essentially the Bush administration consciously knew that there were no WMDs in Iraq and lied about it. Even people on the left who don't make that argument have said all along, well, there, there was no justification for the war all along after things went south. Clearly, there was no justification for the war because there were no WMDs there. How central were WMDs though to the argument that was actually being made back in 2002, 2003? Well, you can go back and read the
1: October 10th to 11th congressional resolution and that would reflect what they had deciphered from the Bush administration's uh, pushing for the war. And remember, George Tenet had told Bush it was a slam dunk. And so they had demanded independent CIA intelligence quite apart from what the administration had. And they had talked, congressional people had gone over to talk to Mubarak. They had talked to King Hussein of Jordan. So they they, they had their own sources of information. Therefore, they voted. And they voted on 23 writs. Three were explicitly on WMD. Maybe two or three were things like the Kurds were killed with WMD. Uh, the Marsh Arabs were. But they were separate. Uh, didn't, you know, the oil embargo wasn't being enforced. The no-fly zones weren't being enforced. He'd attacked four of his neighbors. As I said, he was promoting terrorism. He had terrorists. And so the argument was multifaceted. I thought at the time... And I wrote that, that it was too broad-based. It was like a blunderbuss. It was sort of like the impeachment of Richard Nixon. They put in everything they could possibly think of. And then, of course, when WMD was not found, it was suddenly – that was the only reason we went to war, so so to speak. And it wasn't. I, I never heard anybody in the Bush administration say, wow, um, Ab- Abu Nadal is actually there. And Abu Abbas was – killed, that meant that it was right to go there. Wow, Kurdistan, Kurds were saved, just like we said, or wow, they stopped giving bounties. They never did that. They were very inept about that, the Bush administration. They, they kind of agreed with their critics that WMD had been the only reason to go to war when they themselves had, had promoted and the
0: Congress had approved so many more. Victor, in the initial aftermath of Iraq, … sort of the early Obama years, there was a lot of talk about Americans being war-weary, that we turned inward. That seems to have abated a little bit now, particularly in the last few years with the rise of ISIS. But the dominant theme now, at least in some provinces on the right, is a sort of Jacksonianism. We should meet our enemies with overwhelming destructive force. But we don't really want to get involved in that messy nation-building yeah. stuff. Well, Is that the would, right lesson to learn from Iraq? I don't think so. Uh, I, again, I, when I hear that, I
1: try to be empirical. So I say to myself, OK, who are the rogues gallery we've dealt with? Well, everybody said we had to get rid of Daniel uh, – what's his name? General Noriega. And so uh, – what did we do? We went out. George Bush Sr. went out and took him out. And then he put troops in there and shepherded it back to a regular government. Then we said the next thug is Milosevic. So Clinton bombed him out of power. And guess what? We It didn't fall apart. And then we said, you know, we've got to get rid of Saddam. And we went and we got rid of him. And we had a democracy or something like it in place by 2008. And then when we didn't do this, whether it was helped to – Uh, the so called Islamicists to get the Soviets out in 1980 and then just abandon Afghanistan, we saw what happened. Or we went in and just bombed Libya and kept out of it, we saw that it's now the ISIS embryo. So I don't see any evidence that says, well, you go in and bomb somebody and bomb them to smithereens and then that takes care of the problem. So my attitude is that if you see a rogue and that person is not only butchering his people to such a degree that you feel it's a humanitarian global crisis, something like Rwanda maybe or the Holocaust in Cambodia, or you feel he poses a direct security threat to the United States and then you have to take care of him. Well, you're very naive if you're going to go in there and not doing something. I don't think Harry Truman ever thought, you know, I'm just going to go bomb the North Koreans. And then I'll just bomb them every once in a while. I won't have to put anybody in the DMZ, which, by the way, are still there and which, by the way, had Barack Obama been president in 56, say, up for reelection as he was in 2012. I'm sure he would have said that was Truman's war and we've been here for three years as peacekeepers and the problems over with and pulled everybody out and we would have had a genocide.
0: That brings us beautifully actually to the final question that I was going to put to you today because you have used this Korean War analogy in some of your writing recently and, and Harry Truman, under whom that war began, left office with approval ratings far worse actually than George W. Bush. 22 percent. Trevor And Truman in the intervening decades has been the beneficiary of a significant improvement in the historical perception of his presidency. At the end of the Bush administration, I worked in that White House. It was sort of an article of faith that the same fate was waiting for George W. Bush as you get down the line, specifically as regards the Iraq war. Do you think that will be the case? Yeah, I do. I think he's
1: gone from 32 up to about 49 to 50. He's higher in many polls than Obama is, and people understand now that whatever one thought about Iraq by – January 2009, when he left office, it was quiet and there was hope. And that's not me saying that. That's Joe Biden saying that. And that's Barack Obama saying that. And that's Hillary Clinton. They wanted to really claim that as a successful occupation that they had done. And remember, Barack Obama said as early as 2004, he had no differences, no major differences with with the Bush administration. So I think people are going to see that it was... Naive to think that you could take out a dictator and and plant constitutionalism easily. But after that being said, Bush did not give up. He had the surge. The surge worked. Petraeus was an authentic military genius, as were his uh, helpers, Mattis and Ordiano. And it worked. And he passed off something that was much better, not only than it had been, but much better than when he got there. They were not killing a million people. And they, they, you know, the Syria, is, we've lost 500,000 people in Syria. Uh, he's killed his own people. So I think that that will be recognized. I think it already is being recognized. Donald Trump, when he caricatured that, I think that got a lot of people angry because he lied on three occasions. He said that he had opposed the war when he told Howard Stern, I think Neil Cavuto as well, that we had to go in. And then he's connected it to a deliberate uh, effort to massage the evidence as if you know, and then he tied nine eleven the third lie, and said that Bush had been criminally negligent in, in on nine eleven and had deliberately overlooked evidence that was clear to everybody, so all three of those were untrue, and that that really hurt him, I think.
0: All right. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, remember to stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.